Um, hi. Um, I serve on staff here at Lake, and I have just the awesome privilege it is to um, preach this message to you tonight. First of all, let's uh, thank Jeremy and the band. Thank you guys for everything that you do. I don't know how you guys are if, when you have to get up and speak in front of people, but tonight I'm a little nervous, so I'm going to open up with a little bit. I'm going to open up with a word of prayer. Please join me. Father God, we humbly come to your word. And we simply ask, Heavenly Father, that we um, can open ourselves up to your truth. And Lord, that we ask for a manifest presence of you in this place. And we ask that this, these words that are spoken and these words that are received, Heavenly Father, will find a soft ground in our hearts and be able to grow and be able to find fruition and ultimately change us from the inside out. We give it all to you, Father. Amen. Uh, last week, Albert spoke on Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22. And he ended with the, his uh, sermon with an illustration from the classic Peanuts cartoon. And uh, it had Lucy as the tough sister and Linus, the blanket-toting um, little brother. And Lucy walks into the frame and she uh, asks Linus to change the TV channel. And she threatens him with her fist. Indignantly, Linus asks Lucy, what makes you think that you can come in here and take over? These five fingers, Lucy says. Individually, they're nothing. But when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. (laughs) What channel do you want? Is uh, Linus' immediate response. And he turns away and he walks away for he has been defeated And he looks at his hand and he says, why can't you guys organize yourselves like that? (laughs) And Albert used this cartoon to illustrate Paul's message to us in Ephesians, that God through Jesus Christ has taken individuals who were divided and sinful, essentially these five fingers, and he has um, redeemed them and formed them together into the body of Christ to be the church. And together, as the church, we all stand in unity with God in power. In a sense, God is organizing his people the way that Lucy organized the fingers to be a fist. Now, of course, by showing you a fist, we normally think of power. We think of authority. It's a symbol of strength. But what Paul does next in this text is he backpedals a little bit. He takes a step back, for he realizes that he wants to um, make sure that the church in Ephesus knows what he means by this power. He's, He's thinking there might be a little bit of confusion that will ultimately end in discouragement and frustration. Do you see, this fist is not for us as the church to yield, as a knight would yield a sword to vanquish our foe. But the problem is, is that we as humans, we normally want power. We want prosperity. We want prestige. We want to wield this thing as our own. But Paul wants to illustrate that if we are looking for power, looking for the things that the world wants, these icons and idolatries of power, then we as the church are barking up the wrong tree. 
For at the essence, this message of the gospel will never follow the pattern of success that the world follows. The gospel will always look different. This fist is for God to use. This fist as the church is a tool in the hands of God to fulfill his ultimate will. And not to our concept of success. Let's read the text together. If you don't have a Bible, there is a table in the back there. Um, please take one. You can actually take it as a gift um, if, you want, if you don't have a Bible at home. I'm, I'm going to read out of Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. Verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by the revelation, as I have already briefly written. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, Gentiles are heirs together with Israel as one body and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Verse 7. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. For in ages past, it was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was now, through the church, The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, do not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. So far in this series of Ephesians, um, we've we've learned about how God has worked through Jesus Christ. This letter so far, uh, Paul has spoken of redemption. But now in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In chapter 2, verse 13. The letter has spoken of a creation of a new humanity thus tearing down the walls that divide. His purpose was to create himself in himself, one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace in 2.15. Paul has claimed that Jesus is the ultimate power and authority in the universe, that he is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that can be evoked in 2.21. And Paul has preached about the plan of God. In him, we were also chosen. Having been predestined according to the plan of him, who works out everything in the conformity of the purpose of his will in 111. Paul, within these statements, he, he speaks about the powers and the authorities, the very structure of the world as being overthrown, being conquered by the blood of Christ. 
And the language that he uses is, is like of the highest form. For Paul invokes the concept of the heavenlies, the supreme and transcendent others, the real seed of powers that kind of filter their way into the world. And he names these. He gives a name to them in, two, in chapter 2, verse 2. The ruler of the kingdom of the air. It is this power that the blood of Christ has conquered. Now all authority and power are subjected to Jesus. To use a movie illustration, this is kind of like the agents in the Matrix. Specifically, Agent Smith. And if you remember the movie, he's described as the one that has all the power. He's the one holding the keys. He's the one that keeps the people trapped into the Matrix. And he's the one that goes and stops the people that are trying to get out. And essentially, if anybody wants to try to change the plight of the world, if anybody wants to see change and bring freedom, then they would ultimately have to challenge the power of the agents in the, in the matrix. They would have to dethrone that ruler of the kingdom of the air, as Neo did in the movie. Well, Paul is preaching in Ephesians so far that that is exactly what Christ has done. And he lays all this out. And in chapter 3, he's about to pray for the church in Ephesus. And he starts his prayer in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, dash. He stops. And the text clearly shows that Paul actually ceases his thought. He doesn't... Pray right away. He can, doesn't continue that again until verse 14. Instead, he backs up a little bit. He needs to give further clarity, as if he has perceived a question on the minds of his readers. He enters into a digression, a rabbit trail, a, ten, a tangent, as if what he has just said needs to be explained a little further before he goes on. Paul wants to deal with this question in the mind of his audience. Okay, Paul, I've read what you've written. I understand that Jesus is the ultimate power. I understand that you say that the church is now in unity and harmony. That's all good. That's grand. That's great. But if what you were saying is true, then why in God's green earth are you in prison? Because to me, coming from a prisoner, from somebody in a prison, this message seems a little weak. I would think that this gospel and this Jesus that you profess would want you to be comfortable, would want you to be taken care of, would want you to be prosperous. I mean, you talk a good talk, a big talk, buddy. But look at the outcome in your own life. You're in prison! Pastor Waybright used an analogy last night that I think is, is really fitting. He said, if one of you wanted to be successful in the real estate market, or one of you wanted to be rich, or learn how to get rich quick, would you buy a book off of Amazon for somebody who is homeless, or who never bought a book, or never owned a house? Of course we wouldn't. That would be ridiculous. So why then would we follow this message? Why then would we listen to this, from this hope this power, this joy, this unity from a man who sits in prison. I think that many of us 
feel the same way. I know the times that I do, more than I like to admit. I want to know that this message I believe in is powerful, that my God is able, that these things are going to go my way. In fact, it is clearly shown by how many of us, our brothers and sisters in, in this Christian faith, are enticed by the concept of prosperity in the prosperity gospel. And let's face it, if that gospel was true, that would be awesome. Come to Jesus. He wants to make you rich. Come to Jesus. He wants to make you likable. Come to Jesus. He wants you to be healthy. Your family, your friends, all your relationships will be great. You will get a big house. You'll get a fancy car. For these are the demarcation of the blessed life. These are the things of the kingdom. This is the blessing that God has for you, to prosper you. There are thousands of best-selling books that speak of this. And the promise of your best life now, many times, is what we want. Especially in America. Especially in these United States. For we have taken the myth of the American dream... And we've mixed it with the hope of the gospel. And we've created a concoction that is both potent and vile, which will say that God will make you financially strong, will build you great relationships, and make you healthy if you follow him. Now this idea is as old as time itself. Every single religion, whether ancient or current, has had this concept. And it basically goes like this. If you were receiving material blessing, then you're receiving spiritual blessing. If you're finding favor in your life, that is because you're being blessed by the gods. If not, then you don't have enough faith, or the gods have cursed you, or they in their capricious way just don't like you, or... You are in sin, worthy of judgment. This is not a new idea. If something doesn't look blessed, then it isn't blessed. And many times our perspective today is that if for the message of God, for the gospel to be true, then the outcome should fall in line with what we would expect to see as successful, what we would expect to see as prosperous. Why would I believe your message, Paul? I've lost my job. Why would I believe your message, Paul? I just lost a hunk of money in this economic crisis. Why would I believe your message, Paul? My mother's house just got blown down in that hurricane in Texas. Why would I believe your message? My daughter's on drugs. My brother has just attempted suicide. I have cancer. My wife has cancer or my loved one. My friends think I'm lame to follow this Jesus. Why would I follow this message? Because I look at the church and I get completely discouraged. Where is the unity? Where is this love that you're talking about? I've come to this church for six months and nobody's even talked to me. If this is your message, why should I listen? Why should I care? Because in reality it seems weak and impotent. I don't see this change you're talking about. Furthermore, you were telling me this hope of change from prison, from a place of disgrace. Jesus, you speak of love and redemption as you hang on a cross and die. 
I want to see your fist moving, God, to make my life better. I, and what we are really saying is, is, God, I want to wield your fist so I can do the things that I want to do. Because I know how to fix this mess. Paul goes into this digression to stop this line of thinking. To expound on how things look from God's point of view. He's calling for a change of perspective to those who don't understand how an apostle of the gospel can sit in a prison cell and preach. It is this, to this, these sentiments that verses 2 through 13 are addressed. To this place of where the believer looks at their surroundings and says to themselves, Wait a moment. What have I gotten myself into following Christ? I thought this was about glory and wholeness. I thought this was about overthrowing the ruler of the kingdom of the air. But all I see around me is shame, disgrace, and dysfunction. It shouldn't be like this. Let's look at what Paul says. Verse 2. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, a mystery made known to you, made known to me by revelation. Paul's first statement is to say that this is a mystery that has been revealed. Mystery in this verse is the same word that later gets translated into sacramentum or sacrament. When we talked about baptisms two weeks ago, we talked about that the sacraments are physical, I mean, are a spiritual reality breaking into this earthly terrestrial realm. They reveal the things that it truly is. It is an inbreaking of spiritual reality. And Paul is placing his entire message within this box. He, as he's written it so far, this is what I'm talking about, he's saying. It is a mystery, a sacrament. It is ultimately the way the world, the way reality actually is. This mystery is the way to understand it's the way to perceive the world as God sees it. Though you think of me being in prison as shame and disgrace, you are wrong. You are looking at it through the wrong eyes. As baptism reveals the true nature of a person, being saved and being uh, in relationship with Christ, this message by Paul in Ephesians reveals the true nature of reality and how the church fits into it. The tearing down and the dividing walls between Jews and Gentiles are part of this mystery. God creating an unexpected family is part of this mystery. And he references all of this by saying what I've written briefly in verse 3, the previous two chapters of this letter, and he expounds on it by saying, which was not made known, which is not revealed to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. Verse 5. Paul is saying that God has always been about this work. Paul is not saying that God is doing something new. This mystery is not going against what God has done in the past through the Hebrew Bible. The Old Testament is still valid. It is not as outdated. And for the will of God has always been to see unity and solidarity in the peoples of this earth. He created us in the garden in unity. It is through sin it is through corruption. It is through innocence loss in the fall that we are in the state we are in. But the mystery described in verse 6 is that the ongoing redemptions of all peoples that God has been working since the fall, even through the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. 
This is his work. But now in the midst of this letter, through the preaching of Paul, this mystery is being revealed. It is made known as it has not been known in the past. Through, it's through the blood of Jesus Christ that this mystery finds fruition in the church. It is through the blood of Christ that the walls of separation, the walls of division are torn down. Torn down. And unless you are in the inside looking out, you will miss it. It's mystery to the world. They won't get it. For the world wants power. The world wants prosperity. But the hope that is in Christ is different. For God is in the unity business. God is in the redemption business. There will be a time when all things are made new. There will be no more tears, no more pain, and no more sufferings. This is the hope and the promise of the gospel. But that time's not now. And that time won't be seen by our time scale or how we judge time. But the reality is, is that the church, in Christ Jesus, we are all sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus in verse 6. But if viewed from the perspective of the world, this is an unsolvable mystery. And Paul's not done here. He wants to nail down this mystery. He wants to display what it looks like. For his placement in prison just happens, his placement in chains just happens, happens to be the embodiment, the epitome of what victory in Christ looks like. For his imprisonment is just as ridiculous, just as shameful and disgraceful as Christ's death on a cross. But yet out of this earthly place, out of this place of discouragement comes the truth of God. Out of this human weakness, God is able to move. It is the weakness of humanity in which God is active. For it is in this place, when all is dark, can God receive glory. True glory from all of his works. If Paul was in a position of power in some big old church somewhere, wearing a bunch of robes and everything like that, and he was giving this message, Paul would be receiving the honor. Paul would be receiving the glory. We would look at his position and be like, hey, that guy's saying it, we should do it. But from the place of a prisoner, we have to look to God. Because it only makes sense when we see it through those eyes. What I mean is this. Paul reckons himself as the least of all people in verse 8. Now we today, I mean, I've had, through the years, I've really struggled with Paul. Because I think he's trying to, you know, like, look how humble I am. I'm a good, I'm a good disciple. Look at me. Uh, that's just my own personal take on Paul. I, I really like him now. Um, when I see him, you know, later, I'm sure he'll have words. But... However, Paul is not laying out his credentials here. He's not claiming a place of prestige or fame. He is speaking about the truth of his position. For Paul was once Saul, a man who zealously hunted down and killed Christians, almost for sport. For where he was in the world, Saul was receiving promotion for persecuting the church. The more people he brought in, the more people stoned, the more persecuted, the more he got. It was kind of like a sick salesman, you know, who goes around and tries to sell their wares. And the more he sold, the more he got. The more people that Paul brought in from the church, the higher he rose. 
He was enemy number one of the church. He was favored in the eyes of the world. Paul had power. But of course we know that this stopped. Paul was shown the light and he became Paul. But Paul knew, and he still knows, the horror and the chaos that he unleashed on the church. This is mostly why Paul has such a profound and meaningful concept of grace that he writes in the New Testament. For he knew more than most he deserved to be wiped. He should be dead. But that is not the God that we serve. God does not kill aimlessly. For God is a creator. And God is a recreator. Ex nihilo is this formal theological term in Latin that means out of nothing. This word has described how God created the world out of the formless void in Genesis 1. Really, it's speaking, Genesis speaking of chaos, not the way we say, oh, my kitchen is chaos because I haven't done the dishes, or my life's in chaos because I'm running around. This is that meaningless, disarrayed nothingness. And it is out of this that God does the opposite. God brings life. God brings order. God produces life out of death. And it is the same with Paul. God has taken a person of death, a person of chaos, and has transformed him to be a person of life and promise. And God does a complete 180. This is what God does. This is his work. And this is the personal example in Paul of this mystery that he's talking about in Ephesians working its way out in the life of Paul. But Paul takes this concept and then he applies it to this church. Verse 10. His intent, God's intent, was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. As Paul has taken an agent, as God has taken an agent of death for the church and made him a messenger, made him an apostle, so too does God take the people who are divided, people who hate each other, and has grafted them together to be the body of Christ, into the church, to be his witness to the world and the powers that rule over it. Verses 10 and 11 are a theological bombshell dropped from prison. For it spells out the reason why God tore down this dividing wall. Out of division, hatred, segregation, war, and racism, God builds his church as a witness to the world to show the world And to show the powers and principalities that pull all those strings like a puppet master what God is like and how he does things. He brings them together to be his fist. Unity and solidarity then need to be the right Christian perspective, need to be the way in which we see the world. For just as the individual through baptism has the revelation and the understanding that, hey, look, I am saved, I am with God, and that is revealed. So this message is the revelation for us as a community that, hey, it may not necessarily look like it, but you are one body. And just as that individual 
wants to live out that baptism and strive for Christ-like character. We as a community then are commissioned to strive to produce that Christ-like unity within our midst as a body, as God's unexpected family. Though the world may see us as failures, though we sit in prison, in a place that we sometimes say, it should not be like this. I thought this would work itself out better. We need to remember the example in which we follow and take seriously these words. If any want to become my follower, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? Luke chapter 9, 23 through 25. You see, the cross is the epitome in the ancient world of shame and disgrace. No Messiah was ever supposed to be on it. It defied all conventional wisdom of the time. Both Jews and Gentiles and Romans, except for a small select few, didn't get it. The Roman historian of the ancient world, his name is Tacitus, he wrote in his book, The Annuals, disbelief that Christianity was still around. I can't even believe it. What are these people doing? Their leader was executed and humiliated at the hands of a Roman emperor. And here they are in Rome. Why are they here? In verse 12, Paul states that through faith in Christ, we approach God with freedom and confidence. This is a common thought in Paul, and it finds an echo in Romans in 8.31, where he says, if God is for us, who is against us? Paul is asking, in the face of the reality, the fact that you have relationship with God, in the light that you deserve death, in the fact that you have found a family in the church, why are you worried? Why are you discouraged? Because things don't look like the way you think they should or the way the world tells you that they should? Paul is asking for a change of perspective to take on the viewpoint of God and to see the world the way God does. For as Paul says in verse 13, I ask you therefore, do not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is the way these things work. This life following Christ is not easy. If you want a big house, if you want a fancy car, if you want success, comfort, safety, Look elsewhere. For the heart of the gospel message will always leave you discouraged and will always leave you frustrated if that's what you're looking for. God, he's in the redemption business. God is in the unity business. He's in the love business. And ultimately, all these elements are his. According to his power to be done, according to his timetable, they simply never will be accomplished the way that they, we think they should because we are merely human and so completely limited by our viewpoint. But God is good and he extends the invitation to us to be a part of his work, to be a part of his family, but to be a part of the things of God 
To be a part of his mission means that one takes up their cross and walks. A life according to the manifold witness of God. Many times over, this manifold witness is confused as weakness. But it just happens to be the most powerful force in the universe. Let's pray. Father God, we ask and we thank you that you have our best intentions out for us always. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you care for us and we thank you, God, that you are at work in the world even when it doesn't seem like you are or it doesn't look like you are or we are discouraged, confused, and frustrated. God, we know that we serve a trustworthy God. And we thank you for that truth tonight, God. And Lord, as that guy says in Mark, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, we ask and we thank you that we can come to you in confidence and say, God, we need more of you. We want more of you. Help us, Heavenly Father, to see the things of this world the way you do. Help us in our discouragement. Amen.